0: Welcome to a special holiday wrap-up episode of Above the Fold. 2023 is nearly behind us. We here at the Cincinnati Business Courier have seen a lot of change this year. And so is Cincinnati. From big moves downtown, plans to revitalize the convention center and surrounding districts, new public companies, and a long-running tennis tournament making its decision about whether to stay in Cincinnati. I'm your host, Andy Brownfield, joined by editor-in-chief Tom Demaropoulos, and we'll be having a few of our reporters stop in to help us walk through some of the biggest stories of the year. First, though, Above the Fold is going on hiatus after this episode, so a warm and a very heartfelt thank you to all of you who have listened to the last 56 episodes. Tom, I
1: honestly wasn't sure we'd ever get to this point. (laughs) I know what you mean, uh, Andy, and it's only because of your tenacity and dedication that uh, this podcast started and has continued and has been as great as it has been
0: so i remember i think we we started this officially in october of 2022 and i uh it was it was an idea long before that, where i talked with your predecessor about a project i could take on as i became senior reporter to kind of get the feel of creating a product for the business courier and what that could be. And I promptly Googled how to do podcasts.
1: Was that exactly what you Googled? It how?
0: was, it was. And I learned a lot over the next few months and uh, everything from audio production to editing to publishing. It's, it's been a journey. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And again, I think we're much better for it. And, you know, would love, love having the folders that we've added, Uh, as our fans this year you know people who might have already been you know interacting with the career in other ways but are now avid listeners i love running into people in the you know out in the uh out in the community when they say you know i'm a folder i'm a big fan of the podcast that that brings me such joy
0: yeah so often with anything that we write and then also with this uh, podcast you you put it out into the ether and you forget that real people consume it. I mean, I can't tell you how many times that somebody sends me a really kind note about something I heard in the podcast or advice or a guest they'd love to hear from, and it's just, it, it means a lot. So again, thanks for all of you who have been with us on this journey for the last year and year and some change. So, you know, it is the holiday wrap-up episode, and Tom, I saw you were about to put on your festive holiday tie.
1: Yes, my Snoopy tie. We're now- carrying a little Christmas tree. Is that the same one that you wear to our holiday party every year? I have two. I have two holiday ties. So I have uh, that this red one, and then I have a blue and green one uh, that's Snoopy uh, writing his Christmas list on his uh, typewriter, and then the back of the tie is uh, Woodstock dancing. I think
0: that's the one that you've been known to wear to our holiday
1: parties here at the Business Courier. Yes.
0: <laughs> so jumping right into one of the largest stories of the year, 2023 was not a particularly good year for restaurants in Cincinnati. Uh,
1: no, and, and honestly, uh, is it fair to say this was possibly one of our worst in recent memory in terms of when you're looking at just the, the number of closings that happened this year? I, I think that's fair to say. I mean,
0: I was the restaurant reporter for probably the last eight years, and you preceded me in that role, and I, I can't remember... Any year in my tenure that we've had – so we've had at least – we had more than 40 restaurants, more than 41, close their doors so far this year. And uh, Christian LeDuc, who is our new restaurant reporter, will be updating that list uh, probably by the time this podcast releases. So we'll have a better idea of just how many closures there have been. But – Gosh, I mean, during the COVID nineteen pandemic, there were only thirty seven restaurants that ceased operations, and here we had forty one at least so far, and I'm, I'm sure there have been more since this was last updated in November.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's really tough, and and I feel like the reasons have been varied. It's not like any one thing. It's it's not as if the consumer has stopped spending uh, completely, or you know, tastes have changed and people don't like dining out, uh, but they're there have been a lot of challenges that restaurants are, are going through. Right. I mean, it'd be one thing if it was the same as 2020
0: when there were restrictions on capacity and how many people you could be seated in your restaurant while socially distanced. Or, I mean, at the same time, they uh, restaurants faced a rapid inflation and just rising costs due to supply chain issues. And that's not really slowed down. I mean, look at Jose Salazar, who's Salazar Restaurant and Over the Rhine. It's one of the... Um, mainstay restaurants of that neighborhood. It's been around for 10 years. And uh, Salazar since then has really made a name for himself as a restaurateur opening Midas and Goose and Elder, Finley Markets. But he told me that he couldn't keep Salazar open because the footprint was just too small. He couldn't keep enough people coming through that restaurant to, to make the numbers work out. And that's just because you know, labor issues, the rising cost of ingredients. It's just really tough... To make a profit in restaurants if you can't do volume yeah
1: that does seem to be one of the one of the factors that uh contributes to a lot of these closures is is this idea of labor costs and getting enough good labor enough you know reliable staff members to come in on a regular basis and work and i don't know how that i don't know how you change that i don't know how you improve the situation for restaurants so that it's easier to have talent available no and it's always been a very mercenary industry where
0: you know, restaurants will poach the best workers from their peers just because that's that's what you need to just survive you need top talent and a lot of places are willing to pay to get it but it's become even more so as of late and it's not just the restaurant industry it seems like There was, people come up with all these cute names for the great resignation, the great reshuffling. It seems like during the pandemic and in the year or two afterward that there was a big hunt for talent. People were jumping around, they were getting raises, sometimes two, three times in a year, they get a higher title, more pay. And that's really slowed down in the corporate world. But in a lot of aspects, in a lot of the non-corporate workforce, it's still very much that way. I mean, people have largely moved on since the pandemic. If they left restaurants and, and maybe found a, a more white collar field, they haven't returned and people aren't going back to those
1: industries as the market improves. Yeah. Um, which I don't, I don't know if Andy is the answer that I need to dine out more. W- would that have helped? Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know if, um. I'm not sure if that helps enough. If that moves the needle, because it seems like the problems that are facing some of these restaurants are bigger than just getting enough people in the door. Yeah, I mean, it would certainly help if you ate out
0: at restaurants more often. And I, you know, what I will raise my hand to do my parts. But you're also going to need to get twenty of your favorite, your best friends to do it too. I think a a big part of this too has been just the lack of of bodies downtown. Lack of people, uh, the Monday through Friday crowd in offices and downtown and over the Rhine, just the, the lunch crowd. A lot of these places sustain themselves on lunch, and you know, Thursday dinner's always packed. Friday dinner's always packed. Saturday dinner's always packed. But the
1: lunch crowd really helped them make up the rest of the week, and that's just not been there. Yeah, yeah. It's really hard to be to operate a sustainable business with such limited hours. And it's it's not just these underlying uh, business factors
0: that have caused some closures. I mean, there have been a couple of one offs and some spectacular failures. <laughs> like what comes to mind is Royce in Pearl Star. Now, those were both restaurants operated out of uh, by the the Nashville based Amaranth Hospitality Group, and they'd been recruited up to over the Rhine and downtown to um, to really bring something new. I mean cincinnati is a story of of repeated successes in that 10 15 years ago developers and groups like 3cdc took a risk on young chefs like jose salazar and daniel wright and when those chefs found successes it was easy to go back to that well and have them open up a second, a third space. Yeah. What else can you do? What else can you do? Right. Yeah. Uh, so uh, your, your Mediterranean tapas place is doing really well. Well, uh, how about barbecue? How about uh, a shawarma place? Um, but they, three uh, CDC, you know, Terry Rayleigh and his Amaranth hospitality group found a lot of success in Nashville. They were proven operators. These were not fly by night uh, characters, but I guess, you know, Maintaining a uh, pair of restaurants from that many miles away isn't always that easy. And there was a lot of uh, crumblings about what went on there. And it's neither here nor there. We're not going to air their dirty laundry for them. But Royce and Pearl Star both abruptly closed in February this year. Yeah.
1: And I will say that is one thing that you know, back in my time covering the restaurant beat uh, from talking to operators, it's really hard. To have restaurants that you can't walk into within like a two-hour drive, um, it, there's something about being able to go in and talk to your staff and see the kitchen and see how everyone is interacting and working. Uh, that's just different in the in the retail where you're where you're, you're just such a high-touch industry. Um, and I th- I think there's a lot to be said for our local restaurateurs who keep their kind of holdings within a day's drive so it's easy for them to get get down and check on operations because otherwise things can get out of hand quickly. Absolutely, and that's a... With the closure of Royce
0: and Pearlstar, 3CDC turned back to proven operators who have oftentimes operations within walking distance of the new space. I mean, so Royce is going to be taken over by the Thunderdome restaurant group, the people behind the Eagle, Pepin Dolores, Kruger's Tavern. And they're also going to do an upscale American brasserie. And then Pearl Star is being taken over by the same restaurant group that operates Liberty's Bar and Bottle and The Pony in Over the Rhine. so to help us out with these next couple stories we've got reporter brian planalp who joined us in
2: is it uh, <laughs> it's in july uh, 2023 <laughs> july so, 17th uh, yeah so five months now i think right just yeah just about so it's been it's been nice
0: yeah brian for our listeners who who may be only familiar with your byline tell us a little bit about yourself
2: uh so i am from Cincinnati. um uh moved around a good bit uh, as a kid, as my dad worked for Procter & Gamble, but um, uh, went to Wyoming High School, um, and uh, then Miami University, um, and uh, I worked around the city and a couple of news outlets before this, but um, just really enjoy covering um, Cincinnati and everything that it kind of has to offer. So first up, let's talk about this
0: unassuming millionaire who left giant gifts to UC, the Cincinnati Zoo, the Nature Center, among others. Yep who was hugh hoffman
2: uh he was a sort of unassuming guy who uh was a lifelong bachelor uh lived in a one-story ranch house and uh you know he amassed a, a lot of money uh on wall street throughout his life and uh you know but but didn't talk about it at all even his neighbors didn't know uh that he had uh that kind of money and and really nobody did uh he did some volunteering and and um uh, took trips with the zoo, and you know, interacted with Thane Maynard, who had told me in a previous hmm. story that like th- he had no idea this this person was um, you know worth two hundred and seventy five or two hundred and seventy point five million dollars, uh, which is what he ended up leaving in his estate. So he was a uh, he was a, a from all accounts a sort of a kind and gentle man. Um, enjoyed treating those around him to sports tickets and Bengals and UC and UC was a particular passion of his but uh yeah just didn't talk about his money at all very uh unassuming and so when it came out that he had left this much to uh these local institutions it left everybody slack-jawed yeah i mean
0: gosh i don't think i would be ostentatious or flashy with my wealth if i was a millionaire i mean i don't think i don't think i'd go around broadcasting it but i think there'd be signs like the movie accurate back to the future delorean parked in front of my house mm
2: my hovercraft golf cart i mean i would definitely have to have one of those yeah i think it'd be uh nerve rattling having to keep up with if you have a porsche if one thing is wrong with it well he's like well i'm worth this much money so um why is that wrong whereas if you have like a 1990 saab which is my first car and so my dream car you know just rattling around what, what do you have to lose you know
1: so. <laughs> just burning a little bit of motor oil exactly. no big deal
2: you know
0: <laughs> so hoffman he left what is it 50 million to uc 56 yep 56 Uh, and an equivalent amounts also to the zoo and to the nature center you know the zoo i can see that's probably my favorite place in cincinnati and they're in the middle of their capital campaign the more home to rome where they're hoping to raise 150 million and i have to imagine this is going to help them a lot in addition to that uh have they told you what they plan on doing you that? will
2: only be imagining that because they have not told me anything <laughs> <laughs> uh the zoo um and the nature center who uh, cincinnati nature center who also received 25 million dollars uh they are just not ready to come up with what they're going to do with the money yet and um it's been described to me that the reason because of uh, the reason for that is because um the money can't be uh for the zoo it can't be used in any kind of way it has to be used to specific purposes um, that uh, the estate will agree to Um, and so they're kind of working out how they're going to deploy that uh, capital along with the money they're getting from the sales tax increase Hmm. Um, and uh, they're just working out a plan and we're, we're looking to get some more information about that in the middle of next year maybe july and then the the Nature Center is on a longer timeline because they are actually uh, just in the midst of developing a uh, sort of a long-term, um, you know, big plan that, uh, uh, that this kind of came in the middle of and sort of interrupted uh, in a happy way. Uh, so we're looking on that maybe the end of next year, if, if not 2025. Wow. So, Brian, let me
1: ask you this. What was kind of the reaction from these organizations when you talked to
2: them about these gifts? uh well as i said dane maynard was just uh you know welcomed it obviously but very very surprised um and uh and then the Cincinnati nature center 50 million dollars is a lot of money for the zoo um 25 million dollars is life-changing for the nature center hmm. you know um the executive director of the nature center uh jeff corney told me that he when he heard about it uh, there was like stunned silence and um and, and that this is just going to change everything they do going forward, allow them to um, sort of do things they had never been able to dream of doing before and really be transformative. So that it, it's going to be a great thing for them. And I'm excited to learn about it when, it, when they unveil what they're going to do with it. So it
0: sounds like you see, though, they have a bit more of an idea of, of how this money will directly impact the school.
2: They do. Yeah. Uh, so $56 million dollars it will be split up uh, equally into four buckets. Uh, Now three of those buckets are consolidated into one project. Um, But so $14 million each to um, the College of Arts and Science, the College Conservatory of Music, CCM, the uh, Lindner College of Business, and the UC Athletics Department. And the $14 million to the Athletics Department, as was uh, announced in late November, will be going to scholarships for UC student athletes. Uh, primarily female student athletes, as UC kind of makes the big jump into the Big Twelve and is looking to kind of raise all of its athletic programs' profiles, not just the the big names. And then the uh, the rest of the money, uh, what is that? I can't do math. Uh, Forty two million dollars. That sound right? That's going to create the Hoffman Honors Scholars Program, and uh, the big benefit of that is that it's going to create an opportunity for. Uh, as I said, business students, uh, CCM students, and College of Arts and Science students to come together and solve problems in a way that they might not have had the opportunity to before, and to come up with creative solutions that uh, could be deployed out in the community.
0: So, I remember when I first got into journalism, I had this idea of beat reporters pounding the pavement, notebook in the back pocket, ambushing people with questions, and yeah, most of our jobs are done by phone or virtually through the computer these days. But this story came to us kind of in an old-fashioned way.
1: Wait, Andy, in your in your mind's eye, were you wearing a trench coat too and a fedora? Or I'm just
2: and there's a there's a ticket tucked into the the fedora, right? Proud, I'm with the press, see, yeah. and I uh, declined to comment.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, we actually got a physical piece of mail with a tip about this will and uh, you know brian you looked it up in in the state courts in probate court records
2: Mm -hmm. i forgot about that until just now yeah yeah sort of a sort of a strange uh you know beginning to a story that's uh proven to be among i think the most significant in the region so far this year when you think about it i mean you 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 think about a jobs announcement that has a hundred million dollar investment but that's over the course of, of of time but this is something that's going to help nonprofits and community assets, and it's it's sort of right there, all for the taking right now.
3: Now, yeah.
0: so this next story is one that we actually broke at the beginning of the year, and uh, GE announced late in 2022 that it's going to be kind of the era of the conglomerate is over. Whereas GE used to make washing machines and microwaves and turbine engines. It was going to kind of spin off each of its biggest business segments into their own independent, publicly traded businesses. One of them was going to be GE Healthcare, headquartered out of Chicago. The other, the energy business, which is going to be spinning off early next year, GE Vernova, is going to be headquartered in Connecticut. And that's going to leave Evendale-based GE Aerospace as the sole heir to the General Electric name. And for the longest time, it was unclear what that actually meant because General Electric is headquartered in Boston and a lot of its executives and operations take place up there. But in January, we exclusively reported that come the spinoff of GE Vernova, GE Aerospace was going to be Cincinnati's newest publicly traded Fortune 500 company.
1: Yeah, Andy, this is one of those stories where I think – It'll be a while before we understand kind of the magnitude of what this means for the region. The fact that we're retaining GE aerospace here uh, is huge. And the fact that they've decided to say that, you know, this is where the headquarters is, is even bigger. You know, now kind of some of that might just be a name only, like their operations were already, you know, largely here. But to be able to add that, there's just a, a level of uh, recognition that goes with having, you know, eight or nine Fortune 500 companies in your uh, in your town. And with GE Aerospace's
0: 2022 revenue of upwards of 26 billion dollars, that would make it quite handily Cincinnati's third largest public company by revenue, behind first Kroger and then Procter and Gamble. So we're not only getting a new large public company we're getting a behemoth in our backyard.
2: And the by far of the three spin-offs you mentioned uh by far the most successful or the only one that is successful at this point cuz uh, <laughs> GE Vernova the renewable energy industry or business has not really gotten off the ground yet. And it's you know it's 9,000 employees who are here. Uh you said you mentioned the 22 22 revenue figures 2023 is 32 billion they're going by um, you know uh, a significant amount every year and yeah it, it, it's, it's huge to have that but remember also they have CFM International which is their 50-50 joint venture with uh, Safran in Westchester they have GE Additive uh, in Cincinnati as well and then you have an entire ecosystem of manufacturers that are located in Cincinnati as well that that uh, so it, it ripples out really to, to form a, a huge jobs ecosystem that's very very impactful for the region
0: absolutely and, and you mentioned that their 2023 revenue was significantly higher in 2022. It's it's not just making and selling jet engines that is is really going gangbusters for GE Aerospace right now. Though with CFM, they are I think they represent 70 percent of the global aircraft engine market. They are really kind of pioneering the future of what the industry looks like from right here in the Cincinnati region. And Brian, you've reported on a lot of that since you started here.
2: Yeah, it's exciting to report on because you look back and realize that how we get around and our impact on the world and the environment is going to be vastly different in uh, the 2030s than it is right now because of a lot of the technologies that GE is going to be test- it is testing, and is going to be testing uh, next year, and whether that's sustainable aviation fuels or uh, the new Rise uh, program, I think Andy that you reported on pretty extensively last year. You know, the, just the idea of seeing an engine with an open fan blade is going to be sort of um, disturbing for some, but also very <laughs> exciting um, because it's going to have twenty percent, thirty percent fuel efficiency gains uh, from the last generation of engines. So. Uh, the stuff that they're doing over there and you just talk to the engineers and uh, they have that sort of like spark of wonder that that you that just energizes you as a journalist going to to report on because um, they're so enthusiastic and giddy about what they're doing um, and they just want uh, you to know about it and, and it's good that they do because you talk to the average c- Cincinnati and and they don't you, you you ask the average Cincinnati and, uh, you know what are the big companies in town and they'll say, and g they, and they'll they say kroger but ge rarely comes up in that discussion and it's i think it's, it's good for people to know that like this is a massive massive company that is uh growing leaps and bounds that's going to be locating or, or going to keep its headquarters right here and the other part about that brian that's
1: exciting to me is that the things that they're working on like these are long-term opportunities for growth. This is this is not, you know, dying technology. This is not an industry that uh, is going to go away anytime soon. Uh, they are really a company of the future.
0: Yeah, and you, you look at what
1: Intel is doing
0: up in Columbus. There's a whole ecosystem that's sprung up around Intel, and we pretty much have the Intel jet engines right here in our
2: backyard. Uh, that's very well said. We do, but uh, characteristic of most Cincinnati things, we're pretty quiet about it yeah Um, (laughs) you know All right, well Brian thanks for being with us today
0: you're you're welcome so to help us with this next story we've got our commercial real estate reporter Abby Miller Uh, welcome Abby
4: hi thanks for having me
0: so why don't you tell you've been with us for a little over a year now why don't you tell our listeners a bit about yourself and how you got to the business career
4: yeah, so I am our real estate reporter here at the Courier and um I come from Ohio University. Um, go Bobcats. Yeah, Go Bobcats. Um I'm originally from the Chicagoland area, but definitely went to OU for the journalism school. Um it kept me in Ohio doing internships and all that, leading up to joining the Courier last fall.
0: So, it's been kind of an ongoing story post-pandemic just what is going on with the office markets downtown i mean it's called the central business district for reasons because this is where business happened but with the flight i mean it's a global pandemic of people to the home office it's been kind of a, an enigma what companies are going to do and what the future of that looks like and it's looked like a lot of different things. I mean, you just wrote a cover story, Abby, about some of the cool things offices are doing to lure people back and make work meaningful for them. But at the same time, you've also written about a lot of conversion projects where these old class B or C office spaces are turning into residential. So, I mean, what is kind of the temperature, the pulse of downtown Cincinnati's office landscape right now?
4: Yeah, um, I'd say there's a few different pulses, maybe. Um, So kind of how we saw the flight to working at home, now we're kind of seeing the flight to quality. So what that means is a lot of office spaces are working on adding new amenities, refreshing their spaces, um, just really trying to modernize and kind of revolutionize what office looks like to bring people back downtown and if people aren't doing that seems like a lot more of the class b maybe the older buildings are those that are undergoing conversion and just bringing on that second life bringing people back downtown just in a different way to live here
1: yeah abby so obviously i covered the commercial safety before you joined us here and uh, i've been seeing kind of the same thing cincinnati i think is interesting In that we were ahead of the curve on converting office space to other uses. We've had a lot of conversions to apartments and a lot of conversions to hotels prior to the pandemic. What do you think makes us a good market for this to continue?
4: I think just that we've already seen so much proven success with it. Um, And I think, too, um, just kind of how we're seeing people come back to the office. We're also seeing things like conventions, big events come back, and that really has increased the appetite for hotels. So um, I think it's almost kind of related in a way. It's like you have people, you want to bring them back downtown to work and stuff. When you do that, you need more space for them with the hotels and apartments.
1: Yeah. One of the terms that uh, I've been hearing lately is uh, not CBD, but CSD which is the central social district oh. so this is this is changing the idea that you know a city's CBD is not just where all the businesses are but it's where socialization happens it's where you connect with people it's where there's interaction and that doesn't necessarily mean in your office building it can mean at a hotel you know convention at uh, an apartment building um, I, I just find it fascinating that that there's this kind of changing mindset about what a downtown actually is.
4: Yeah, definitely. I don't know if there was
1: a question in there.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not sure.
0: (laughs) So a lot of these, these buildings that were built for business or corporate use and that are now being converted are some of the icons of our skyline. I mean... The Carew Tower, which was long the tallest building in downtown Cincinnati, is in the beginning phases of conversion project. And that same developer has also got his hands on Macy's old corporate headquarters a couple blocks down.
4: Yeah, definitely. I think it really is just a matter of these buildings, they are so historic and important to downtown, but if they can't serve their purpose, how can we still make them important and have that impact? So definitely buildings like that. There's also the PNC Tower that they're finishing up, which is another great one.
0: That's a City Clip Apartments?
4: Yes. City Club Apartments, um, that's going to unite with some other apartments that they already completed down there and almost make it like city within the city, so to speak. So definitely still building that kind of like social structure here. It's like apartments, I believe, also like a rooftop bar, stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I think they've got a dog park and a dog run.
4: Oh, yes. Everyone loves the dog parks now in their apartments.
0: That, when I was an apartment dweller, I would have loved. So I, I lived in, you know, speaking of apartment conversions, it was the, the can lofts in North Side. It was an old the american can factory where they would well make cans and i had two dogs at the time and i would have to from my fifth floor apartment walk them all the way down the hall into the elevator down the elevator all the way down another hall through the parking lot out to a tiny strip of grass where i could walk them around let them do their business and then repeat the uh, excursion it got to be quite the
4: pain <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, you want people downtown bringing pets and walking around, you know, really making that social fabric and going to the businesses and other things that we have. So, I mean, it makes sense that we have developers including these more and more.
1: So what's interesting, Abby, is, you know, we talk about how much space is being converted. So and I I, I want to say at one point uh, it was about three million square feet of BNC space that was going away of yeah. office space that was being converted to some other use. What does that do for our remaining office buildings, and and what are they seeing in terms of of interest from office users?
4: Yeah, I think for those Class A buildings that are really amenitizing themselves, um, you have fewer options, so you want to go for the best of the best, for sure. I think also it just kind of makes people look more at those buildings, so to speak. Like when there is sublease space in some of these kind of class A, very premier buildings, people are really looking to snatch that up.
1: Where have you seen success? Who's, who's been successful this year?
4: I would say the atrium buildings um, kind of combined over there, um, adding that food hall. Now they have AltaFiber, who just renovated and has a really, really great space down there. And they have some sublease space up on the market that is seeing people wanting to take it on. And we'll see some new users there um, in the coming year. So that's been a big winner, I would say, for sure.
1: Yeah, we also had uh, the Foundry opened and is fully leased. Yeah, which is a great one. And then GE at the banks, uh, their building seems to be backfilling rapidly.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the other thing too, with this sublease space, if you're able to present something that is, you know, very modern, comes pre-furnished, there are folks that even though it seems like offices slowing down, the sublease still seems to be really strong with people wanting to go into these spaces that are already fit out for them.
0: So you mentioned the flight to quality. What are some of the things that office users are doing to attract their workers back into the office? Because it's kind of it's really hard to ignore the allure of rolling out of bed wearing sweatpants and having your dog in your lap while you're working
4: from home (laughs) definitely Um, i think another phrase that we're seeing in addition to flight quality is earn the commute so whatever you have in your building has to be competitive with home it has to be better than home Um, so i think one thing that we're seeing is fitness centers that people can either get a membership for use free of cost another thing is just really having those spaces for Spaces for collaboration because when you come into the office, that's what you want to do. You don't want to come in and do head down independent work that you could have done at home. So, having huddle rooms, having little like phone booths where you can have people sit like across from each other or something like that um, those are the spaces that people really look for. And also, just having that more like open space that doesn't feel like you're sitting in a cubicle all day. So, those soft seating options, that cafe seating is really big, and people look for that.
1: Essentially, it's more of like a third place than uh, yes. uh, than an office that you know I, I sit at my desk it's like no someday today i want to sit at this couch and that's where i'm going to mm-hmm. sit and i'll have a couple meetings and take a call and then i'll go to lunch and i'll be able to go to lunch in my building so absolutely. it's absolutely yeah it's having options like that that uh that are just you know Different than how office space used to be thought about. Where I think in the past, it, it felt like office was always, you were trying to get the most out of every square foot. And I think now they're trying to, uh, in terms of a dollar perspective, and now you're trying to get the most use out of the per, per square foot that you have.
4: Absolutely. Um, a lot of users that I've talked to have said they are doing hoteling now. You don't come in and have an assigned seat and assigned workstation. Maybe one day you are sitting at that soft seating or a couch or something. Other days, maybe you are at the traditional desk for sure. And it really is. People are willing to put more money into the space if it is something that's going to draw their employees back in. Even if there are a lot of companies, too, that say that their employees maybe come in for half a day um, and then go back home and do calls in the afternoon. But even if people are doing that on a more routine basis, that's better than people working completely remotely.
0: Yeah. And then it it, it really can't be beat. I, I, you know, Tom and I are here three, four days a week. I uh, forgot my lunch and and breakfast this morning I swear it wasn't on purpose <laughs> if my wife's listening I didn't do it just so I could buy food I, uh, but I did end up having to, to walk down to Atrium too just to get breakfast and then you know I had to leave our building and our office on the 34th floor twice just to eat and that's why a lot of these, these office users are, are really office owners are really trying to amenitize their buildings so you know people don't have to leave they have everything they want right there in the office
4: yeah, absolutely. It needs to be your home and then some. Yeah.
0: Well, Abby, thank you so much for being with us. Of
4: course. Thank you.
0: So we've come to my favorite recurring segment in the podcast. Andy learns about sports and to help us with this next story, we've got a uh, veteran sports business
3: reporter, Steve Watkins with us. Andy, I'll be glad to educate you to whatever extent I possibly can.
0: Now, Steve, first, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself?
3: Sure. Yeah. So I've been with the business courier for 24 years now, but I've actually been doing business news locally since 1990. I was at the record before that. We merged with the courier back in 96 for the old time listeners. And uh, I've been covering banking and finance all that time and really sports business virtually all that time. Although covering sports business has changed and expanded a ton since back in those days and business has gotten to be a lot bigger deal in the sports world and we found that out a lot this year yeah so it was this
0: year was a bit of a nail-biter when it came to the western southern open i mean it was always an open question of whether beemont capital its new owner uh based in north carolina charlotte yes Based in North Carolina, sorry,
3: Charleston, South Carolina. That's true. That's where mock is located. It's Charleston,
0: and uh, it was always an open question of of would they try to relocate the tournament outside
3: of Cincinnati? And it came out this year that yeah, they might try. And they, Charlotte is what the reason it was in my head. That's where they thought about, and at one point apparently wanted to move the western southern open too was charlotte north carolina so that was very dicey for quite a while yeah
0: they had they had a 400 million dollar plus plan to build this giant tennis complex in charlotte and you know i remember you were you wrote a cover story kind of handicapping our chances and going into it i thought that it, it was it was charlotte's tournament to lose but it turns out as you reported out that story that wasn't quite the case
3: yeah, it, it was really funny and very interesting to me that when I started working on that story, and that story came out right before the tournament, which was in mid-August, uh, so I probably started working on it a few weeks before that. When I started, I thought it was going to be a story about, look, we're almost for sure going to lose this tournament to Charlotte. What's that going to mean? And as I talked to people, I got the sense both local people and, And even people in the industry, I got the sense that we had a decent chance of keeping it. It wasn't by no means certain, but it was probably about a 50 50 chance that we keep it a few people especially locally thought it was even better and of course they're going to be optimistic and i tried to keep that in mind but when i got done with that uh, the reporting and then writing that story i thought we we have a lot better chance than i thought before that and that you an expert on sports also (laughs) thought and so um, it, it seemed like, you know, there, there are a lot of benefits here. I mean, the tournament's been here. Um, you know, it's been at uh, the Lindner Family Tennis Center for, uh, you know, several decades. It's been in Cincinnati since 1899. There's all this infrastructure built up uh, volunteer system. Um, you know people are used to traveling here from all over the place all over the Midwest and all over the world to come to it so the benefits started to rise to the top as opposed to BMOC having to re- rebuild this whole thing all over again in Charlotte
0: so what was
3: it that finally
0: brought them around I mean was it the infrastructure that was here was it the history the local support was it the money
3: I, I think the answer would be yes to all Um, but I think ultimately the sense I got uh, both from others and from my own reporting was that I think when the tournament happened here in August this is the first year that BMOC owned the tournament and it, it was in effect you know the previous year they hadn't quite closed on the purchase of the tournament they were here and saw it but they weren't involved this year it was their tournament and the sense I got is once they saw, here's what this tournament is, here's all the support, um, fan support, sponsorships, volunteers, and the money. Um, but when they saw what it was like here, uh, I've heard that um, Bob Moran, who heads up their sports uh, and entertainment unit, said, I, I don't think we could duplicate this anywhere else. So that that's a pretty strong argument for Cincinnati. And when I interviewed Bob during the tournament, I asked him what surprised him. And he talked about the first weekend before all the big names are here. It's a lot of qualifying. It's really not a big fan draw. And he said, I couldn't believe the amount of fan support, how excited everybody was, even for that first weekend, when people usually aren't um, all that fired up yet, it's usually a few days later when you really get the fans to come out in droves and and if if he wasn't really planning to keep it in Cincinnati, he could have just said something about the volunteers or something and gave me kind of a, you know, a pat answer and behind the scenes be thinking, yeah, this is going to Charlotte, but he did not. I mean, he sounded genuinely surprised and excited. And I've heard other people in the, in the know, you know, in the industry and everything that have said, yeah, once they had the tournament here and they saw it, they thought, we got to keep this here.
1: Yeah. So what's interesting to me, Steve, is that, you know, not only are we are we keeping this tournament, but uh, which is a huge win in and of itself, because Cincinnati, yeah. we beat ourselves up a lot when, you know, things don't go our way or we don't get something. It's like, ah, shuck, Cincinnati, we're terrible. <laughs> Uh, So we we had a big win, but also this tournament
3: gets better by staying here uh, going forward. Yeah, well, in two years, so not in 24, but in 25, um, it will nearly double in size. So um, the player field goes to 96 from, I think it's 56 now. The length of the tournament in terms of number of days goes to 12 from like nine and the economic impact is expected to about double right now it's a, it's estimated at about 80 million dollars a year which is huge that's that's right around and maybe a little higher than what the major league baseball all-star game was here granted that was in 2015 but not that long ago and i mean you know that's a once in 3 decades type thing this is something every single year and that Economic impacts probably going to go up to 150, 160 million, if not more, um, you know, in a couple of years. So, yeah, it's going to be huge. They're putting in, I think they said $260 million into renovating and expanding the Lindner Family Tennis Center. It's going to be a year round facility for people with pickleball and things like that. Uh, more tennis courts uh, more events uh it's it's going to be a a massive uh project out there it's a terrific win for the city and to look at how we beat out charlotte for something charlotte's always been the up-and-coming fast-growing cool place to be and maybe cincinnati's that now
0: amen to that well steve thank you so much for being with us
3: thanks for having me
0: So there you have it, some of the biggest stories of 2023. Thank you all again so much for listening to Above the Fold, and from the business courier, happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and have a happy new year. Above the Fold is a podcast by the Cincinnati Business Courier, hosted by me, Andy Brownfield, and Tom Demaropoulos, Joined today by reporters Brian Planalp, abby miller and steve watkins the podcast is produced and edited by me
3: and our theme music was written by dylan mccartney